Hello, and welcome to the Catholic Homeschool Podcast. I'm your host, Paula Ziskanik. And today's podcast is all about seeing history through the Catholic lens. I am thrilled to invite Christopher Zender with me today. He's the general, the general manager, the editor, writer. Well, we'll get to know him in just a minute. Hello, Christopher. Thank you for joining Hello. me today. Thank you for having me. So good. I was just telling Christopher before we hit that button here that I've known him for many years, and this is the first time we get to talk in person. So we're going to make this time here a time to get to know Christopher and to know the work that uh, he is doing to help us families in teaching history, again, through a Catholic perspective. So without further ado, let me just Get this part over with, Christopher, which is, you know, reading the bio. <laughs> okay. Right. So Christopher Zender is the general editor of the Catholic Textbook Project. He earned his Bachelor of Arts degree from Thomas Aquinas College in Santa Paula, California, and his master's from Holy Apostles College and Seminary in Cromwell, Connecticut. He has taught history, theology, Latin. English grammar, composition, English literature, and universal literature at Catholic secondary schools in both Connecticut and California. He has developed curricula in history and language arts. And in addition to his work in education, Mr. Zenger has authored a trilogy set in the German Reformation. And that first volume, which we'll talk about in a minute again, too, is recently published by um, Aruka Press. He has edited two monthlies and written for various publications on historical, political, and theological subjects. He and his wife, Catherine, with their children, live in central Ohio. Well, thank you. We got that out of the way. Good. <laughs> A little background. But what it doesn't really say in there is something I found very interesting, which is you had sent me your interview with Marcus Grodi from Journey Home. You know, Christopher, we have like this growing community of homeschool teens in our community. We even have a teens now Catholic author group. So I really wanted to dive into your background, your journey as a convert to the faith. So let's begin when you were a teenager and fast forward to how in the heck did you get to where you are today? That's always a hard question to answer because there's so much, there's so much that goes into a conversion and much, much of what goes into conversion, you often don't even know what, what they are. They're different influences. Um, I was kind of an odd teenager. I, I liked reading and looking at maps. And I read all sorts of different things. So I, I guess I was, I tended to be an intellectual almost for my, my early teenage years, if not before. Um, I, I come from a historical faith. Uh, my, my family has been Lutheran since Martin Luther. They were some of the founding family, one of the founding families of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And so we, I always grew up with a, a sense of that history. In the sense of a tradition, even though there was a time in my life I rejected all that, um, mm -hmm. I, I was influenced by the Jesus movement through my brother. Um, but I did come; it, it was something that drew me back. So that that sense of the of the beauty of that tradition, and we had it was you know the liturgical tradition of the Lutheran Church is very similar, mm -hmm. anyways, to the Catholic liturgical tradition. 
Yeah. And um, and the music music is a, plays such an enormous part in Lutheran worship, particularly the works of Bach. So that's one of the things I've always missed being a Catholic is I don't get to hear Bach preludes and postludes. Exactly. <laughs> I do have a friend who's who's a convert. He was a Lutheran minister, and the same thing they missed. You know, they they actually he's now a priest of the, you know, the ordinariate. Mm-hmm. And partly, I think, because of the music, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the whole congregation, congregation, you know, or would sing in heart. They would harmonize with each other, you know. So that must have been a beautiful experience growing up with that. Yeah. So that, I was I was drawn by that. There were lots of other things that went into it too, but um, yeah, the sense of the historical. I was early on drawn to the, when I was a teenager. To, I, I was compelled to find the historical faith. That was that was a big part of it. Um, and even though I rejected all of that at a certain point, it was always something that drew me at the same time. And through an influence of a very important man in my life, uh, my Latin teacher in high school, a man named Kevin Long, and he, uh, I, I was drawn towards the Catholic faith, even though he never told me he was a Catholic. He always told me he was a mere Christian. He taught in Lutheran school, but um, I, I gradually understood where he was coming. I knew ultimately he was Catholic, and it was through his influence I ended up going to TAC as well. Um, but yeah, so the, those are the di- di- various different influences that came upon me. There was a Lutheran minister who was a, sort of a mentor to me, and he also was a was a he was a theologian. Um, he had he he played musical instruments. He had a, a profound sense of beauty, and all that drew me towards the Catholic faith. I'm sure he doesn't like the idea that it drew me towards the Catholic. Faith. <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah. right. Um, but all those things were 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 deep influences and there were intellectual problems I and mean, intellectual questions that I, I struggled with as well. Like the whole question of authority, what is the authority for divine revelation? Where do we find the true interpretation of scripture? Those things deeply troubled me. So um, ultimately all those questions, the, the only answer that seemed to make any sense to me was the Catholic faith. In fact, at a certain point in my life, I, I thought if the Catholic faith proves to be false, I'm not even going to be a Christian anymore. <laughs> I figured it didn't make any, you know, it wouldn't make any sense. It wouldn't make any sense. Absolutely. Right. It's like, again, right, right. That's been a very small encapsulation. Um, as you know, my, my interview. Yes. Well, people, I'll put the link for the yeah. journey home one because people should listen to it. It, it is. And because the reason why I bring this up is essentially because we tend to underplay what teenagers are going through. And, mm-hmm. and the fact that you were questioning and seeking knowledge brings us then full circle to the importance of what books and materials we are feeding that's that thirst for knowledge. So, yeah. Right. Uh, before I talk about books, though, I just make, want to make a point of the importance of teachers and mentors um, and how seriously we have to take teenagers. I taught teenagers for many years. I have raised them. Uh, I, I think sometimes we, we, we don't, pay them sufficient respect and we, we we don't expect enough out of them they can actually do perform a lot more than we give them credit for and we have to give them that that confidence and sense that they can actually understand an um, education difficult material that they actually um have a high calling they have to follow they're not they're somewhere between children and adulthood but they're more adults than they are children i think that's something we have to always pay them that kind of respect and never speak down to them never condescend to them that's why i was a teacher i know i tried never to do is never i I didn't want to condescend to the students 
I would speak to them like I was speaking to adults. I think that's a very important thing. Um, what we give them to read is also extremely important and um, on various different levels. On one level, what we give them to read should be good literature, well-written. Um, I mean, the classics, of course, students should, should have access to. Um, in, our, in our reading material too, like in our classes, we would want to have, and I think, books which are written well, which are intelligent, which um, are, 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 are inspired by the, the love of learning and of wisdom, and which, being all, we're all Catholic, they should be Catholic in orientation. We can talk about what that means <laughs> in terms of history. I mean, it, it becomes difficult, like when you're doing mathematics, what's Catholic mathematics? Right? Yes. You know, yeah. It's not counting rows of beads. There's no Catholic, really, specifically Catholic mathematics. And as I'll talk about in a minute, there's no, in a certain sense, there is no Catholic history either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in many ways, it's why it's like, I, I do like to preface that by the Catholic lens, you know, again, it's that understanding or faith and perceiving that through that, that, you know, perspective. So, I mean, one of the things, uh, getting back to the teenagers, I can't, you know, again, thank you for saying that because very often, I think, especially with homeschooling parents, they tend to be, say, okay, I'm done. And, and they don't pay attention. They, oh, it's the teenage years. We won't understand each other, but it's like that much more essential to actually get to know this fully formed person who has a calling for noble things and being able to, to respect the dignity of, of that age and of that individual. And that's kind of on loan for such a short time. Right, right. Yeah, you're quite right about that. Yeah, yeah. It does go fast. I can, as a, as a grandparent now, I can say all of that. <laughs> so, good. Well, one of the things um, that always drew me, and again, I grew up New York City kid, so we learned current events. There was no sense of history. So when I, I am a revert to the faith, when I began to homeschool, it was not only a journey of my faith, but it was also a journey of history. And our family just loves, loves, loves history. And the one thing I really wanted to dive into is why I highly recommend these textbooks as that spine. You know, I, I do homeschooling history, you know, using history family style for multi-ages is one of the frameworks. I teach people to do that. But I use that book as the framework because of the things we're talking about. Um, let's talk about how that project started and what its mission is and why is it different than what's out there. Okay, well, we, we, we began in two, the year 2000. So we had a meeting in Phoenix. I, I was living in California at the time. I'm a native Californian. We were living in Phoenix and um, Michael Van Hecke, who was the president of our comp uh, company, our first general editor, um, Dr. Ron Lasseter, a uh, mutual friend of ours, um, Douglas Alexander. We all met and we had an opportunity of, of getting some money to produce Catholic history books. Now we were all had been in schools. I, I, I was teaching high school. Michael Van Hecke was a headmaster. Um, and Ventura, right? Is this was when he was originally, he was originally uh, in Phoenix. Oh, and then, okay. then he ended up in Ventura. That's why we were in Phoenix. Why else would you go to Phoenix? <laughs> but um, <laughs> we we all had had the experience of trying to teach history in schools with substandard books. The problem was is that there had been no Catholic texts published since the late '60s, and many of those books were not really adequate. Um, 
it had to do with lots of different things. One of them is writing style. They were oftentimes written in a very dry and pedantic fashion. Yeah. Um, they weren't beautiful to look at. Sometimes there's a kind of triumphalism or even a kind of extreme Americanism, which you find in these books. And we just didn't think that they were, they were the sorts of books that actually evoke wonder. Mm-hmm. When I taught, um, we used one particular book, uh, an old book at the school I was at. And I, I would just assign the readings, but my history classes were, I would do the research myself and take notes and present them. And my, the students, I don't know if all of them liked it, but uh, there were those who did. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I took down the, I would take notes and lecture that way. So we wanted to, we, we thought we need to have books which are as colorful and attractive as a lot of the major publishers' books. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's, only, that's a very minor thing. Um, the, what we wanted was, of course, Catholic books. And we can talk a little bit what that means in terms yeah. of history. But we also wanted books that uh, evoked wonder and, and the desire for knowledge in students. And so what we landed upon was the idea of writing these books in a narrative fashion. You know, we're uh, basically almost like many of the good, good popular histories, uh, mm-hmm. Sheldon Foote, and you think of American history, uh, are written in that narrative fashion, almost like you're telling a story. Yeah, Nathaniel Philbrick's book on, you know, travels with George Washington, and, and he was a literature person who writes history, and again, making it accessible, very telling us that narrative, the story. Mm-hmm which is a really fascinating way for kids to get be totally engaged in the story. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was the goal we had. And the biggest problem of course was money. And we thought we had enough money. We'd gotten a woman had willed us some money to do this. And so, but we had nowhere near the amount of money to do it. It's ex- extremely expensive proposition. What we set out to do, especially in those days when you actually had to buy all the pictures, mm-hmm. we want to have a lot of pictures that were, that were, works of art you know true works of art not cartoon drawings and yes uh, exactly i think that's if anybody ever and again they can go to the website and see those pictures but it's like really literally what makes the difference in many ways it it, it really captures the beauty again the beauty so yeah you had to license those in the old days right (laughs) yes it was um yeah it was (laughs) Very expensive, and you know, I think I think that first book with pictures alone were thirty thousand dollars. Oh, goodness. and that was a lot We're, more then than it is like you know. <laughs> right. <then now. laughs> In those days, we were we actually published with Ignatius Press originally. Right. I, don't ask me the date when we stopped, but we decided we would go our, form our own publishing company, which has been an adventure. Uh, we've had years we've struggled quite a bit, um, but now I mean we're actually doing very well it's it's they're catching on um schools all over the united states have are buying them and we're getting inquiries continually um you have new ones as well and my son uh you know when you did the lands of hope and promise which you know again there's nothing out there like that that gives the perspective of spanish history and the Mm -hmm. importance you know we constantly all the history books are always talking about the English coming, and, but they never talk about coming from the Spanish perspective. And, and they're closer, you know, to us being Catholic. <laughs> well, that's, I think that's, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, when I wrote that book, I was living in California 
And so I had, you know, you, you live in a in pro close proximity to Spanish culture. Uh, and it, it seemed to me that for two reasons why it was important. But to understand the United States, you really have to understand her neighbors. And the most important neighbors are Latin America. You couldn't write a history with all the Latin American countries, so include a concurrent history of Mexico. So we start. it starts with the, the Spanish and it moves into the revolutions and Mexican history. Uh, and I think it's important both to understand, you know, a growing population in the United States, but probably more importantly to understand ourselves because oftentimes with American history, the, the problem is, is it's told in a vacuum and it's, it's, it's not told in the proper context of a larger civilization. And so we you know, think certain things are just absolutely obvious and clear, which are not obvious and clear um, questions of, of, the foundations of government, the nature of government authority, um, whether a state, a nation, which a culture should be, um, you know, um, basically agnostic mm -hmm. in, its, in its approach to religion. We take all that as obvious, but when you see a, a, a country like uh, Mexico, you begin to see that there are other, there are other, um, there are other ideas that are, are at work in in, in play in society. And those ideas come and cl they clash with ideas that come from the United States. So you, you began to actually, you had to think on a broader level. It's even better, of course, if you're doing European history. Um, and to see the United States in context with that. Now, I don't think the point is to see the United States primarily. I think that the point is to know this history. I mean, uh, Mexico and Europe are not just foils for the United States. The book I talked to you about earlier that I used in school, one of my criticisms of it was was that it made it seem like all of the development of Europe co coalesced and found perfection in the United States like it was all there just for the sake of the United States and yeah. so yeah. you kind of have a kind of pan European thing but all of a sudden you're just talking about England <laughs> because exactly, England. exactly so yes so, so fascinating my family and I went to Jamestown you know we went to the real site of Jamestown and and you have the, you know, you have the park rangers who are giving the tour and they're talking about how horrendous the conditions were. But he gave us the broader perspective. They just said, you know, England was not, did not have the naval power, was not as, you know, there is Spain and Florida, you know, and it's, it had the conditions been better for starting or, you know, I mean, basically it was like, People that were punished in England, it was like either you are hung or sent to Jamestown. <laughs> People would prefer to be hung because they knew it was so terrible. So Spain never even tried at that point. And I thought that was so eye-opening for my children, for my whole family, to really get this pr broader perspective that it isn't, like as you said, this. let's just look at America as the center of the world, <laughs> put it in a historical perspective. Right, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, we wanted to have we want to have books which would in, in, inspire wonder, the desire for knowledge, because we're we're convinced that um, well, man, as Aristotle and Saint Thomas said, man is a rational animal. That's the that's the definition of man. Um, we have all the animal passions and the like, and, and bodies and the whole business. But what really distinguishes us is the fact that we can know. We can will too. I mean, will is obviously important, but before you can will something, you have to know it. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to have to inspire that love of knowledge, which is, I think, just being killed constantly in our society through technology, through the culture, all different ways, other things. It's being killed almost 
in a special way by the educational system. Yes, exactly. Um, exactly. And, and of course, I represent a lot of homeschoolers who are trying to actually mm-hmm. reclaim that for their families. Right. And I, I think that's so that 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 love of knowledge, the understanding that knowledge is good, not because it gives you a good job. Not because it, it gives you position and standing. Society might do all those things, but if it doesn't do any of those things, it's still good. It's good in and of itself. Mm-hmm. It's it knowledge is is our is the perfection of the human mind, and wisdom ultimately is for that perfection. And you can only find that through seeking to know, to living your life in such a way that you're always trying to learn, what, whatever your position is, no matter what, what you do in, in life. You one based on one's one's gifts and one's um, opportunities, one always seeks to know. So that's it. We're, it's, it's the liberal education, right? The mm-hmm. principle of liberal education, not you know the Democratic Party education, but liberal in the sense of that which frees, right? That which frees us to be fully human. Mm-hmm. So that was another aspect, and I think that that um, being Catholic, what we're been attempting to do and trying to do is recover the real tradition of Catholic education, which has been fairly killed in so much in the United States and throughout the world um, since the, since the 20th century, um, where you have Catholic schools aping the standards and the, and the measures undertaken by public schools, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. that, so they, they set the standard, we try to measure up. Whereas, really, we have the superior education because <laughs> it's actually rooted in hu- what it means to be human. So it goes; it, it's even pre-Catholic. It's, you know, it goes back to Greece and Rome. So th- that's one of the big inspirations of what we what we've been setting out to do. And yeah. uh, and I would say it was very inspiring. You know, I love to tell the stories, the fruits of your work. My son, as I said, did take that class, Lands of Hope and Promise. He, he, I think you were teaching it at the time on um, Homeschool Connections. Mm-hmm. And he had just published the book. In fact, we were just like, I don't think it was in hardback. It was like digital that first time. And we went through it together. It was amazing. And then fast forward, you know, he got he's my youngest who went to the local college. He's a business major of all things, but has a, still has a strong love of history. And he had to take a history class. And there he is immersed in secular history. And he, there he was researching and bringing to class the broader perspective that he had learned foundationally from doing things like working through your book with you. So oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. That's <laughs> it's always encouraging. Yeah. Yeah, as a teacher it is. But to know that the fruits of that gives that legacy is giving right. the foundation for the next generation. Right. right. Yeah, I want to, if I may, um, just add what we mean by Catholic history. Yes. Uh, because we Please. do tell these books from the from the perspective of the Catholic faith, and and I understand why when people first hear that they say, "Well, then it's just biased. You're just you're just making stuff up, right?" What is Catholic history? It's like Catholics and or what's Catholic mathematics? It doesn't exist. In a sense, it's true. Catholic history doesn't exist. You know, the, the term history, historia in Latin, means an inquiry. It can also mean a narration, a narrative. Um, it's an what history is an inquiry into the human actions and events of the past, trying to get to know, to come to know what happened and as best you can, why it happened. So, and both of those oftentimes when you study history, you find it's 
oftentimes you don't even know what happened. It's not clear what happened. I've been, I'm working on one of our next books for freshman level high school. Um, and, and I'm going through the medieval period in the ninth and 10th centuries. And sometimes you just don't know. There's not enough, the records aren't there. So when we talk about history, we're talking about the inquiry, which since the 19th century has become very scientific. Um, we're also talking about the events themselves. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, the inquiry, there's nothing specifically Catholic or anti-Catholic or non-Catholic about the inquiry. It's, it's kind of neutral in terms of, of being Catholic. However, nobody writes history without a perspective. Um, if you're, if you're the, the, the modern historians who pretend like they're objective, they're not. They come from a certain perspective. It could be a Protestant perspective. It could be a secular perspective. It could be a Catholic perspective. Uh, but we all come from that perspective. And that's something we have to take into account when we're telling, this, telling the story of history. That perspective uh, for Catholics, obviously Catholic. Well, now, does that mean I, I, I simply blithely believe anything that a saint said or... Or even with, say, to take the life of Christ, if I look at the Gospels, do I just say, okay, the Gospel said it, that's it? Or do I submit the, even the Gospels to a certain kind of historic scrutiny? Uh, it's the latter. That's, we, 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 when we try to do, you try to see the Gospels as historical documents. And I, I don't think there's anything impious about that. It's just, um, that's what they are, they're historical documents. And they, they, they can be examined based upon that. Okay. Um, I think we're, so being Catholic means you respect the actual demands of the discipline uh, that you're following. Um, if you're a mathematician, you respect mathematics. Mm -hmm. If you're a philosopher, you respect philosophy and the actual inquiry of those in those disciplines. To be, when you're doing history, you respect, you respect the demands of the historical discipline, the scientific apparatus that goes into it. Mm -hmm. I think one of the big differences is though, is this, is that we Catholics, and this, and this thing, I guess would go for anybody who believes in God, but um, we're, we have a broader view, a broader vision of the world than say a, a secular materialist does. For the second materialist, there's nothing else but the material causes. All causes of history are gonna be economic or they're going to be environmental. Um, they can't, a secular historian is, uh, because of his assumptions, can't ex accept miracles, for instance. Mm -hmm. So he's limited. He has to find some non-miraculous um, explanation for the certain events, which seem very well documented, say, such a thing. Uh, Folks like, like Fatima, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. All, you, there's a number of different things you can point out like this. Mm -hmm. As a Catholic, I don't, well, let's take Fatima example. As a Catholic historian, I don't come at Fatima saying, oh, the church has said it's believable, therefore it happened, or, you know, uh, pious people say it happened, therefore it happened. I have to look at the event of Fatima in, in, a, in a manner which is in accord with the historical discipline. I have to see what's the evidence, right? Mm -hmm. I can't just be pious. I have to be, uh, it has to be evidence-based. Uh, but I can actually, I can actually entertain the idea that something miraculous did happen. That's beyond our, you know, yeah. our physical uh, ability to, to recognize something. Yeah, exactly. Right. Brought and in so, that, that uh, inquiry, as you say, that search right. for knowledge. Mm -hmm. Right. 
So I can entertain a lot more. Uh, I think also being Catholic, we have a sense through our faith of the trajectory of history. Now, again, we can't just take this, our, our assumed trajectory, our ideas of providence, and just sort of explain everything by them. Um, or do we say God's sort of, you know, or be a deist perspective where he's just set everything in motion and boom, we're on our own. Right. So we have to, we have to do the work. At the same time, what we can entertain except and, and un- seek to understand history in light of what's revealed without shortchanging history, without um, being simplistically pious, we can actually, we can actually say, um, I, I, there seems to be a movement. This, this happened, th- these providential, these seem to be providential events. Um, I'm thinking like, something like a historian like Christopher Dawson, mm-hmm. uh, where he, he talks about, like who asked the questions, he talks about the role of religion. And you can tell his understanding of the role of religion in his histories comes from being Catholic. But you would never say that this man is being, um, he's a duped Catholic, or he's trying to dupe us with, with slight, historical sleights of hand. He argues from his, the actual evidence of history. Mm-hmm. And, but he argues he does it as a Catholic. Yeah. He, can, he can entertain that providential aspect of history. So I, I think, you know, and I think too, being Catholic, if, we, if you really are being Catholic, you don't treat your history as a propaganda piece, like so much of history is being done now, unfortunately. In this yes, world. it is. Oh, my goodness. And that is one of the hardest things, you know, Christopher, especially when we talk about homeschool materials. We have different viewpoints, secular, even our beautiful, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ who have certain perspectives that you're right. It's all about pushing down that evangelical propaganda as part of, even within science or math, you know, just (laughs) trying, here's another opportunity to get somebody into my, in the door of my face. So yeah, that's again, why I love the breath of fresh air in terms of the perspective that of your textbooks Mm -hmm, in the project. Part of our perspective too, is what we want to make sure to do is be honest. you know, the tendency always is to protect your own, right? Yes. <laughs> and there's, there's often been, there's, there's been this um, idea amongst certain Catholics that you only play up the good parts of the faith. Mm-hmm. You kind of hide all the bad stuff. And, yes. I, and our perspective has always been, we're going to tell this story, warts and all. Um, we're going to tell what about the bad popes. We're going to talk about the abuses in the, that occurred in the church, how Catholics have fallen short time and again. And I think that's, if you don't do that with students, they're going to find it out from somebody and maybe not even in a particularly accurate fashion, but they'll find it out from somebody and they're going to turn around and say to you, why didn't you tell me this, right? Yeah. We can at least tell it. We can tell those stories with the perspective of the faith. We can explain it in relation to the faith in a way that nobody else can. Christopher, that it's also from a standpoint of like, we're not, when you're seeking truth, you're not afraid that the things you're going to find out are just because the truth never contradicts itself. It's, it's central. It's just Mm -hmm. leading you to a closer relationship (laughs) to, to his story. Right. Yeah. 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 And I, yeah, that's, um, so I guess in a way put it, Catholic history is just history, <laughs> told by Catholics. 
Yes, yes, exactly. It's not a tool to, you know, again, propaganda. It's not to prove a point. It is the unraveling of of truth of what's happened and being able to open your mind to that perspective. And what you're going to find is not always beautiful, is it, Christopher? Because it's no. it's humanity working in this world, this sinful world. And you'll find you're going to find there are admirable people who aren't Catholic. Sometimes there are people who are more admirable than some some non-Catholics are more admirable than other Catholics. Um, I, too, I mean, even even with if you take a um, somebody like Martin Luther, for instance, mm -hmm. um, it's very wrong to go and just treat Luther like he was a devil and not try to understand the man. Um, you know, being raised Lutheran, I always, I guess I have a certain, I always have a certain residual piety towards Martin Luther. People might think that's weird, but it, it's hard being raised in a, in a faith where you're, you're, you're told that Luther is the second St. Paul, right? Mm -hmm. For so many years and not to feel like this, he's, he's, he's a certain paternal figure. It's almost rather like finding out your, your father was a rat, right? <laughs> I mean, you're not saying about Luther was entirely a rat. I mean, but there was admirable things about Luther. Mm -hmm. There are things we have to understand about Luther. And it just makes history boring if Luther is just a black hat. He's just a bad guy. Yes. It's easy to dismiss bad guys. It's easy to scapegoat as well, too. Right, isn't it? right. And Napoleon is another character I find fascinating. And uh, I, I, the complexity of a man like Napoleon is, is fascinating. And so that will lead to wonder. Uh, students will say, well, there's these people who did which we th things which we think are wrong, but yet they're not entirely bad. And there are people who are doing good things who are not entirely good. It, it'll get them to thinking, right? If we can guide them directly, we can get them to understand for instance, like the church is not her members. I mean, she, we're all members of the body of Christ, but the church ultimately transcends that, yes. um, the, yeah. the earthly reality of it. Well, like it's, you said about the, you know, talking about the bad popes again, too. I, I had a beautiful dear priest who said, you know, when you look at the church, we have to look at it in 500 year chunks, <laughs> you know, not right. like what's going on this year versus last year. And, right. and, and this overarching the Holy Spirit protecting the church, guiding it, keeping it, you know, right. true to, to Christ's church. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So I guess I, yeah, I think I've said about everything about the Catholic <laughs> history. No, it's I mean so important it. for people, for our parents to hear this, Christopher. It really is important. Very, very important. And, and just the guiding light as to what we pick, how we work, how we inspire our teenagers, what we give them. And, and so what is coming next? Let's talk about those historical fiction books before we wrap things up. What well, else can we expect from from? Um, Catholic textbook project. Well, the, the historical fiction books are not Catholic textbook projects. No, my, they're yours, right? That's right, right. But um, so I have to make that disclaimer. It's important. Um, from Catholic textbook project, we are we we published an eighth grade. We just it's going to be going to print hopefully very soon. Um, an eighth grade American history text because there was a lot of requests from that, particularly from Catholic schools. Um, we were our hope was that we could just have people do modern history, modern European history in eighth grade, but it didn't work. Yes. I mean, people are people use the book Lights Nations too, but this is yes. going to be an alternative for eighth grade, and it's uh, there's a tremendous amount of interests and orders are are really flying to the roof. Um, 
I'm currently working on a book of one of the first books, actually, Dr. Ron Laster did a lot of it. And it, it's it's a history that goes from basically from prehistory to the Renaissance, it's a big chunk. But um, I'm in the Middle Ages right now, so that's something I hopefully will have done next year. But um, with everything else we do, we have a, we have a very small staff, so okay. All <laughs> right. like we will pray for you <laughs> in getting those books out. They and have so, been, yeah. So, but tell us about your own. And again, one of the things I encourage families when I'm teaching them about history, family style, and the the importance of yes, that framework text, but then immersing yourself in that time period because we very often uh, view history from our modern mindset. What about historical fiction and being able to recreate and immerse ourselves in that? That's one of the inspiration for those, the trilogy. Tell us about that. Well, the trilogy, I mean, first of all, it's it's not a teen trilogy. So I know there's a lot of teen. Probably I would say you'd have to be older to really understand it. And actually, my, my, my daughter, who's 20-something, <laughs> um, she, just, she read it for the first time, and she said she's glad she didn't read it when she was younger because she didn't think uh, understand all the themes. So mm-hmm. I would say it's more for adults than it is for, for okay. children. Not that there's anything really nasty in it. It's just... Uh, yeah, well, like, as you said, it's like reading um, Christian Lavan's daughter and about, you know, Norway. You know, I, I think being a married woman reading it versus a teenager, you get a totally different perspective of that the beautiful story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So life experience makes a difference in what we read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the trilogy, um, it takes it goes from roughly 1506 to 1550. And it deals with a young man who actually gets drawn into the Reformation. And it's about him. The central story is him and a woman, and of course, the young girl he meets, but the, their, their relationship in, in the context of all of that. Um, it's the first one that's been published, I mean, by Aruka. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, called, it's called A Song for Elsa, E-L-S-E. And the first the first volume's called The Vow, and it's a Ruka Press, it's A-R-O-U-C-A. Yeah, and we'll put the links below this okay. video, okay, so I have those links. And, and I'm, we'll so, I'm so, I'm yeah. so, I'm so, I'm so, I'm so, I'm so, I'm so, I don't know these things. Well, so many but, of our homeschool parents are, again, they're getting educated, and they want this good, mm-hmm. you know, literature and materials and a sense of history, so I'm so glad you're writing these. Yeah, yeah so, and, um, so the first volume actually that goes right up to the verge, the beginning, right before the Reformation begins, so it doesn't actually have those events in it, but it I, it has you get a context, a sense of the time. Um, the second volume goes through what I call the heroic years of the Reformation from 1517 to 1526, and pretty much culminate in the rather brutal, bloody peasants' rebellion in Germany in 1525. Uh, and the last volume goes up to um, goes the last volume has been the hardest to write. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Second volume was easy in a sense because there's so much good material you could draw from. When you get this, go from 1526 to 1550, you're kind of, there's a lot of imperial diets and um, meetings. And so you have to try to find things to actually, you know, make the story more, it, it was just more difficult to write. But those are, that's basically the time period. There are some historical characters who appear in it. Martin Luther is one of them. Um, Philip Melanchthon. Um, there's some others. Um, I, 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 I probably have an, my portrayal of Luther would probably maybe tick off both Catholics and Protestants because um, <laughs> he's 
I, I, I think I present him as the complex character he, mm -hmm. he, he was and how at the beginning he was a different man than he was at the end. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. But that's basically it. Yeah, so it's um, I, the first volume has been published. We're going through the proofing of the second volume. It's that's just about finished. I just have to put the plug in all the all the changes, and then it goes. You know the typical process where it gets laid out, and you have to read it through again and um, find right. any mistakes, and then it's. So I'm hoping, hopefully, this summer the second volume will be out. So. so. A word about writing, because I said we have this great new group. They are so energized, these young Catholic teen authors. And um, again, the mission of that whole program is not is to be authentically yourself as a Catholic and just write stories instead of using it as, you know, shoving in Catholic things. But would you say you were always a writer, Christopher? Because I mean, you're just prolific and, and you, and is it a job? Is there's like one thing I'd love for you to just <laughs> inspire these teen young authors who feel inspired to write? I always wanted to be a writer. Um, mm -hmm. I, I did, I wrote when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. uh, I wrote for a while, I even wrote poetry. I don't know if it was any good, but what really propelled me, I went to college, I went to TAC and, um, did whatever writing I had to do there. But then I, when I got out of college, I wanted to write, but I, I, I had, it, it, sometimes what happens when you when you don't have to write for a living is that you worry so much about your style. You keep thinking, my gosh, is this perfect? Is this just right? And and you go over and over and then it gets, then after a while it, gets, it does get bad because you're, you're, over, you're overthinking the thing. What helped me, and unfortunately the avenues for this are not as, common as they once were was i had to go i i got a job as a journalist i edited at first i wrote for two catholic monthlies in california i became the editor of one of the first one and then the other and i had to write to make a living so i had i had to push out a thousand word 1500 word article every month at least one yeah. and i didn't have time to worry about my style at that point i just had to write and and that helped. That helped tremendously. I, I stopped thinking about that sort of thing. I mean, not that I don't go try to prove things, but at a certain point, I just say, that's it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, what we're doing with them is we give them a challenge each month. And, and uh, we have a young man, Dominic D'Souza, who's, who's managing and we're bringing in Catholic authors. But that's exactly it. It's You're right. That is so important. Uh, they have to, there's deadlines. It's just that ability to say, you've got one month, here's the prompt. It's on fairy tales. This month it's on myths, you know, and just get it done, get it, you know, get it in there and we will publish it. So that understanding, that's so good. So helpful that you said that it made a difference for you. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Great. Well, um, before we wrap things up, I do anything, any last parting words you like this? I mean, I, I just, we can spend another hour <laughs> talking about history so close to my heart and obviously yours. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I would just say anybody, parents engaged in homeschooling, be very careful that you cultivate a sense of love of learning, a sense of wonder. And one of the best ways you can do that is by cultivating a love of learning and a sense of wonder in yourselves. I know when you're raising children, it's hard to have a sense of wonder, or you may wonder what you're doing wrong sometimes, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> a different kind of wonder. What am I doing this crazy thing? And then am I crazy? I'm 
homeschooling on top of it all. <laughs> but to the degree you can, um, try to cultivate that. I mean, there, there's lots of different things. You have natural interests, even if it's if it's gardening or something. You know, um, study gardening to the degree you can. Um, but one of the, I mean, you can a, a good book is important, but it's never as important as a good teacher. We we need the good teachers out there, um, and being if you're homeschooling, you're that you're that teacher. Yeah, St. John Paul II says that by just the virtue in his letter to families, being a parent, you are a teacher. And you don't have to be, I, I just don't think, worry so much about the technique. It's just, I think it's the, it's the ethos. It's the, it's the um, culture of learning that you try to cultivate. Culture of good music, culture of good art. Um, take them on walks in the country, especially now that spring is coming and and just observe the beauty of nature. All beauty and truth and goodness all go together. Um, and you, your children are gonna be good to the degree they're also inculcated with wisdom and with beauty. And I, you can't just, morality is not something over here and you know wisdom over here, they, they go together. What morality, what virtue is, right? Virtue finally comes that word virtus, which is manly, it's manly strength. Mm -hmm. And what virtue is, is the perfection of ourselves as human beings, right? That's, that's what it is, it's, it's strength. And what is that virtue? St. Thomas would, would refer to virtue as not only moral virtue, we always think of, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also intellect, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the virtue of the mind. And not everybody reaches that those virtues, the, the intellectual virtues, to the same degree. But we can all participate in to some degree, and that's in a degree even parents can do that is important. And you know, if you have a hard time doing it, I mean, try see what help you can get. <laughs> uh, yeah, you you have certainly made things accessible, and and I say even just as I encourage parents. Read, you know, read aloud. If you're finding, you know, you're not getting, don't just hand the book to the child. Let's read it aloud as a family. And oh, yeah. I think, I think that's really important. Um, and in fact, the, the more the current books, our younger group, we have little pronunciation guides for names, but like uh, um, Life the Nations 2 in the mm -hmm. teacher manual, it actually has an appendix where you can learn the pronunciation of names. Because I know some of these, it could be jaw crackers. Yeah. Yes, they can. So much help in the teacher's manuals. Oh my goodness, it's beautiful. Including some musical pieces, the timelines, historical novels that complement it. So yeah, it's beautiful. There is help out there. And I'll put in a shameless plug for the Catholic homeschool community, <laughs> which is the place to get support and help and where they are, you know, growing together. Thank you for bringing Thank up you. that point about parents, you know, the, the call. Our, we all have a call to holiness and to model that for our children comes first from our own seeking wonder and knowledge. So. Yeah. Thank you so much, Christopher, for joining me today. Again, what a pleasure. Um, I will mention once again, if you're looking for the links for uh, Christopher's uh, general editor, the managing editor for the Catholic textbook project.com and then please do join me in the catholic homeschool community on it thank you again and may god bless you abundantly bye now thank you so much for watching if you enjoyed this video please consider liking it and subscribing to our youtube channel you can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms like spotify apple podcasts and soundcloud Thank you and have a blessed day.